This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today's scripture is John chapter 14. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a black one either in front of you or underneath you. And that would be found on page 901. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Fellowship. Uh, My name is Ron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Let's pray and we'll jump into the text. Father, we, we love you this morning. We come to you In the name of Jesus, because of his finished work, because he has made a way in his life, death, and resurrection for us to have access to you by faith. God, so this morning we call upon your name and ask as we open the word together that you would be pleased to speak to us. Would you open our eyes? Would you open our ears? Would you soften our hearts? Would you make us receptive and pliant and available and open to the truth of your word? God, even as we heard read again this morning, um, in the places where you have exhorted us to not let our hearts be troubled, but to believe, I ask that as we hear from your word, would you by the spirit awaken faith in this room? Would you cause there to be greater belief in your truth, what you've revealed? Would you speak to us this morning? Would you anchor our hearts in your truth, in your power, in your life? We ask that you would come and enlighten our eyes and soften our hearts. God, would you give a spirit of revelation? And I ask that you would give grace this morning. Grace for us as we hear your word. God, I ask for those of us in this room whose hearts, even this morning, we come in with troubled hearts. We come in anxious and fitful or fretful. God, whether it's anxiety or fear or bitterness or rage or shame, God, I ask that your truth, as you speak it to us, would comfort us this morning. We have no other place to go. You alone have the words of life. You alone have words that bring peace. You alone have words that bring comfort and stability and rest. 
So would you come and speak, Lord? Come and speak. We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So we're uh, week two uh, in our time in the Upper Room Discourse, which is John chapters 13 to 17. We're really highlighting John 14 to 16 over the next several weeks. Uh, we began last week, and I just want to recap uh, a bit what we, what we hit on briefly last week uh, so that we can have the context and the framework to dive into uh, the truths that we hear Jesus declare this morning. So if you weren't with us last week, what, what John 14 to 16 is, is on the night before his crucifixion, as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, he gathers uh, 11 of his disciples close to him. Judas has left the, the Passover meal in order to go betray him. And in the face of this coming trouble, Jesus gathers his disciples close and he begins to speak to them truths that are intended to sustain them and stabilize them and keep them and guard their hearts as they walk through the troubling time that is in front of them. The means that Jesus gives or the way that Jesus uh, speaks to them to not let their hearts be troubled, which we see in 14 verse one, is a call for them to believe in God and to believe also in him. So in these chapters, Jesus outlines really beautiful truths that are intended to stabilize the hearts of his followers and our hearts in the face of circumstances and situations that will seek to weigh us down or bear down and overwhelm our hearts with sorrow and grief and bitterness and despair in this world. We are, we found last week, or we talked about last week, to engage our hearts in the face of being troubled down with these things. And some of the ways that we, we see our hearts get troubled down or some of the realities of that you could say are anxiety or grief. You could say bitterness, anger, rage, shame, all have this potential to weigh down and make our hearts fitful and fretful in the midst of this world. We are to engage our hearts in those moments we see here by rehearsing the truth that God has revealed in his word with a spirit of thanksgiving. Look with me here at Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7. Paul does a similar thing as he closes out his letter to Philippians. He, he exhorts them in verse 6 to not be anxious about anything. He says, in any situation, doesn't matter what you're facing, no matter how you're walking through this world, what circumstance, what situation, what trial, what test you're walking through, don't be anxious in anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul isn't saying here, hey, drum up something in yourself to stabilize yourself and keep yourself from being anxious when you face hardship. He says, as you walk through life, no matter where you find yourself, utilize that situation, that circumstance as a means to come before God with prayer and supplication in a spirit of gratitude. So we actually see Paul's antidote here is to have a spirit of thanksgiving, a spirit of gratitude as we engage the Lord in the midst of our circumstances and situations. 
Then we see verse 7, the response or what God does in, in light of these prayers given with thanksgiving and uh, joy. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we see Paul does a very similar thing here at the end of Philippians. He says, don't be anxious. Similar idea. Don't let your heart be troubled. As you're walking through this world, as you're tempted to be weighed down and fretful and fitful because of the realities of the hardship of life, in the face of that, respond by coming before the Lord with prayer, supplication, with a grateful spirit. And in that place, God's peace will will guard your heart and your mind. Jesus relates the truths of John 14 to 16 to standing firm without offense. We looked at this a bit last week, but as Jesus teaches these realities, he starts the sermon with a command to not let your heart be troubled. He almost finishes the sermon just as he's coming to a close of it. He begins to tell the disciples why he's telling them all these things. We see in 16 verse 1, he said, I'm telling you these things so that you won't be offended. You won't fall away. You won't stumble. As you walk through the difficulties that are in front of you, I'm telling you these truths so when you walk through them, your hearts will remain steadfast and you won't become offended. So Jesus, we see here, does not leave us to ourselves. By his grace, he gives us truth that we can uh, navigate as our hearts face these troubled dynamics. He gives us storehouses of truth that we are to seek to lay hold of in the midst of our troubles. He promises then to release peace as we engage the truths he has revealed. Now, here's an important reality that I don't want us to miss as we dive into what Jesus then lays out for us in the first couple of verses here. This isn't to be some kind of like one for one, right? Like I feel weighed down in my heart, so I come to Jesus, I declare the truth to him, and he gives me some form of like peace unit in response to that right? That's, that's not what we're seeing happen here. What Jesus is declaring is he's saying, as you, by my grace, seek to believe in me, come to me, uh, bring your supplication and your prayer to me with a spirit of thanksgiving. As you do that, you will find your heart is more readily stabilized with peace. Now this doesn't, isn't like a one and done, like he just gives you the peace and then it lasts forever. It's incremental, it's small, you'll feel it for a while, you'll be stable, you probably won't even notice all the time that you're experiencing it, but you'll look back and you'll go, oh my heart feels much more stabilized in the midst of this life as I'm walking through these trials, as I'm walking through these troubles. So don't see it as this like vending machine thing where like I come and do this and then he comes and does this. It's not, that's not how it lays out. What Jesus is saying is I desire to give you my peace. The mechanism that I have bestowed to you to come to me is a heart of belief and a heart of thanksgiving. 
You come in your need and in your brokenness and in the places where you are tempted to be weighed down and you pray, you give supplication and you do that with a spirit of thanksgiving and my peace will guard your hearts. We see that. Okay, so Jesus gives three truths as we jump into this. And my hope today is to just highlight each of these, kind of hit on them as he lays them out and then close our time with what does it look like or how do we begin to engage that as Jesus has given us these things, what does it look like to come to him in belief in the places where our hearts might be tempted to be weighed down or overcome by despair or anxiety or shame. The three truths that he lays out for us in these two verses are, number one, there is a place that you will dwell called the Father's house. And it has plenty of room. That's the first truth that he puts on the table. The second truth that he puts on the table is that he is going to prepare a way for you to enter into that home. He is going through his death to prepare a way for you to come into that home. And the third thing is a promise that if he goes, he will come again for his people. And when he comes, he will take them to himself and we will be with him always where he is. So those are the three truths that he lays out to us here. I'm on Roman numeral two, if you're following along in the notes, the father's house. So the first truth that Jesus gives us to his disciples after he exhorts them to believe. So he comes and he says, don't let your hearts be weighed down. Believe in God, believe in me. And then he begins to lay out truths that are meant to stabilize and secure and keep us in the midst of this world. He demonstrates this beautiful truth that they will live with him forever in his father's house. The starting point for engaging our troubled hearts in this age is the proclamation that he will come to them to take them to his father's house. The father's house is a term you could use for the dwelling place of God or heaven. There's, you know, we see it demonstrated so many different ways throughout scripture. It's the father's house. It's a city. It's a country. It's a homeland. Here, Jesus declares in this group of intimate disciples as he's seeking to set their hearts stable in the midst of the trial that they're about to face, he says, you will be, you'll be in your father's house. There's plenty of room. There's plenty of places for you. Now, I think it's a remarkable reality that Jesus begins with an eternal perspective. I, I, I don't want us to miss this. Think of, think of this. This is, this is the greatest teacher who's ever lived. The greatest pastor who's ever lived. The greatest counselor who's ever lived. The God in the flesh coming to a group of people who's about to walk through real hardship, real difficulty, real sorrow, real loss, real pain, real temptation, real uh, difficulty. And he doesn't talk to them about any of that being removed, being taken away. 
He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it because you won't experience the hardship. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it because it's not going to last that long. What Jesus does by this beautiful gift of grace is he takes his disciples and his starting place of pastoral ministry or counseling or whatever you want to call it here as he's giving counsel to his disciples is look at eternity. He takes us all the way to the end. Now think about this. When you are in a place where your heart feels overwhelmed and sorrowful and you feel the weight of that pressing in on us, how often do you, is your first move there? Or for for friends around you, how often is their first move to counsel you or shepherd you or help you set your eyes on things to come? This is where Jesus starts. He doesn't start with their circumstance, with what it is they're walking through. He takes them all the way to the end. And he says, look at where all of this is going. Look at where all of this is going. Now, many believers, I've, I've found myself included, we don't spend a lot of time thinking on or meditating on or thanking God for the reality of an internal dwelling with him. I mean, just think about that. As we walked through Isaiah the last several months, near the end, there were several passages that brought us face to face with the reality of our eternal home with God. And we talked a lot about setting our minds on that and fixating our gaze on that and spending time in prayerful dialogue and meditation with God, thinking about eternity. Now, how many of us actually do that, right? Think about this. When you walk through that circumstance in your life right now, or six months ago, or the one that's just on the, on the horizon for you, where you come face to face with the hardships of life, real sorrow, real suffering, real pain, real disappointment, real uh, temptation towards rage or uh, vengeance, all of those realities. How quickly do we take our hearts and minds and reach for eternity? I find that many of us don't do that very often. Right? We don't spend time thinking on what is to come, God's promises, his provision, the reality of our eternal dwelling place with him. Now, I think that could be true, maybe, because I think a lot of us have a wrong conception of heaven. Right? Like, uh, I don't know, I was, I was laughing to myself this morning as I was thinking about it because I remember when I was like seven, eight, and nine, like growing up in the church, and, you know, we would have like the hymn singing nights where like Sunday, once a, once a month on Sunday night, we would come in and everybody got to like call out the hymn that they wanted. Um, oh, it was, it was, it was awesome. Uh, you know, just flipping through the hymnal and playing and everybody sings. It was great. Uh, but I have distinct memories at like seven, eight, nine years old going, okay, God, like, I know, I, I actually had these when I'm, when I'm young, right? Like, I know you are good and I know you're awesome, um, but 
is heaven just going to be like a big hymn sing service? Like it talks about worshiping always. And like this, I, I, can, I can last for about 20 minutes, like three hymns, four hymns. And it's like, then I get bored. I'm over there coloring like my kids are probably doing right now. Uh, but you, you have this like con- concept that isn't uh, rooted in the reality of what the scriptures say eternity is like. Right? We, we, we might think of like a harp on a, in a cloud, like we're sitting on a cloud in a harp, like maybe like a cherub or something. Like we go back to this baby-like angelic state or something. But you have this concept of heaven that is not rooted in the scriptures. Therefore, we often don't even think about it. We don't spend time putting our mind into the eternal reality of what's in store, what God has promised. But throughout the scripture, God promised not some disembodied kind of like spiritual uh, experience where it's ethereal and we're floating around and just playing a harp on a cloud. He's actually promised that he is going to remake the earth and that heaven, all that is true about God's kingdom and glory and power is going to be joined to this earth. You are going to dwell there forever with a resurrected body. No longer is your body going to stand in the way of your experience of the delight of God and your fascination with his majesty and glory and beauty and splendor. You're going to have a real assignment like a real thing that you put your hands to. Creation and working and partnering with God to image him throughout all creation does not end at when he comes back. It just becomes free of sin. What you were mandated to do, what our first parents were mandated to do, to come before him in communion, to be filled with light and his very glory, and then take that and work to subdue the created order under his dominion, you, that's what's in store for you in a resurrected body forever. Now, think on that. That is what he is welcomed you into. Look at Isaiah 65. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or even come into mind. We just looked at that several weeks ago. John, the apostle, picks this up in the book of Revelation. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, meaning if you like vacations by the ocean, that's not meaning that there's not gonna be any water. What that means is the chaos of sinful humanity is gone. It's subdued. The imaginary of the ancient mind, the sea was the untamed, unordered chaos of the world. And it's gone. Everything is brought under the order of the living God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So God promises that we will dwell with him for all of eternity in unbroken communion. 
The reality of the Father's house is meant to demonstrate for us that we have a place in the family of God. We're adopted like children because of the work of Jesus. Now, as his children, we become, Paul says, heir to all things. We must spend time meditating and bringing these ideas into our conversation with God. One of the greatest sources of hope in this world, right? The ability to stabilize your troubled soul in the midst of difficulty is the reality of our eternal place with God. Look at Colossians chapter three. This is what Paul says. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So what he's saying is, let your mind and your meditation and your thoughts be taken to the reality of God, his kingdom, Christ, his work, his place. And what Paul says later, I don't have it on the notes for you, I'm sorry, is Ephesians 1, he says that in Christ, what God is working to do, when it's all said and done, the wisdom of God will be made known in Christ as Christ takes everything in heaven and on earth and brings them together in himself forever. Many people seek only to provide hope by looking at changing their circumstances or experiencing the temporal blessings of God in this life. However, the message of the scripture is that God has prepared a place for us to experience eternal satisfaction, eternal joy, eternal communion with him. Many believers throughout history have not seen in their lives substantive, like breakthrough in God's presence, his power in the things of God and their circumstances or whatever that is. They've looked forward to a day and they've waited for a dwelling place that God has made. And by faith, they looked unto it, that God would bring them into it. We see that in Hebrews. So our eternal citizenship is to be a source of great peace and rejoicing for us as we navigate the brokenness of the world. Okay, the second thing that I want us to see here is what Jesus says, you know, if he first says, in my father's house, there's plenty of space, there's many rooms. He then turns to say how he is going to secure their place in this home. Jesus assures us that there's plenty of room for those who are called to the family of God. This is meant to demonstrate that God has abundant and ample provision for all who will come to him by faith. Jesus then tells his disciples that it's because of the eternal dwelling that he must go to prepare a place for them in the father's house. Now this speaks of, in the context, Jesus going to the cross. You know, Jesus isn't going to heaven to like build a house, right? He's not taking out his materials and like putting together a house. He says it already exists, right? In my father's house right now, there's plenty of space. There's plenty of rooms, but I have to go to prepare a way for you to be a part of that. That's what he's saying. And he's talking about the cross. Look with me at page three. I wanna, I wanna highlight, and there's probably a lot more that we could talk about here. 
But I want to drill into five ways that Jesus prepares a place for his followers. Five ways. As Jesus goes to the cross and he says, I prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare the way for you to come into the Father's house so that you can dwell secure with him for all eternity. I want to just highlight five ways he does that. First, at the cross, Jesus atones for the sins of any and all who would look to him by faith. So what we see is the reason that we cannot experience life with God. We have been separated from, severed from life with God, the presence of God. We experience now death and sorrow and brokenness because we have each and every one of us sinned against a holy God, right? We have sinned against him in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. We have chased after other things. Paul says in Romans 3, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us. The wages of sin is death, right? We deserve to be punished. We have a debt that has been accrued because of our sinfulness. Our sins must be forgiven. Jesus goes to the cross to pay the price to forgive the sins of any and all who would come to him by faith. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 7. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We see it again in Colossians 2. And you could go all over the place in the New Testament. God made the people who have been come to Christ by faith alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So how does Jesus prepare the way for you to come into the Father's house? First, through his death, by the shedding of his blood, he makes a way for your sins to be atoned for. So now the debt that you owed is canceled. Because of your sin, the debt that you have has now been canceled. If you put your faith in Christ, if you lay hold of him by faith and believe, he atones for your sins that you might have a place. The second way Jesus does this is at the cross. Jesus experiences the wrath of God and sufficiently placates it or appeases it for all who come to him. So you had a debt that was owed because of your sin, but you also deserved the righteous indignation and judgment and punishment of a holy God against your sin. Jesus at the cross becomes the sufficient sacrifice to placate God's wrath or appease God's wrath for any who are joined to him. We see that in Romans 3. Paul says, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. That's just a fancy way of saying uh, an atonement or a, a means by which to placate his wrath. It was the idea of the mercy seat. Christ became the mercy seat for us 
by his blood to be received by faith. This was so that God could show himself righteous, that he could be both just, meaning he doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. He stays just, but he can also justify you. That's what happens at the cross. Jesus experiences the wrath of God so that those who are in him can be justified. Number three, in his resurrection, Jesus is demonstrated to be the son of God in the power of the spirit, showing that he now has victory over sin, death, and the grave. How does Jesus prepare a place for you in eternity in the father's house? He wins decisive victory over death, which is the final enemy. Now he is the Lord of death and he can resurrect and bring to life all who are in him so that we can be raised to live with him forever. He goes and he becomes, he he holds the keys to death and Hades. We see Revelation 1. Number four, through his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus entered into the heavenly temple and made a way by his flesh for all who would believe in him to gain access to the presence of God. So he forgives, he placates the wrath of God, he has the keys to death in Hades, he's triumphed over death, and the author of Hebrews says that he creates a new and living way in himself so that any who would come through it now have access and entrance into the presence of God. We see in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, you can read those on your own, last This isn't the only thing, but like I said, there's more than these, but these are just five I wanted to highlight for us because these are truths that you can hold in your soul as you face the overwhelming pressure and the temptation to become weighed down and overcome in this world. These are truths that we're invited to believe. Believe as true. Number five, at his ascension, Jesus casts out the accuser from the heavenly court and demonstrates that there is no longer any condemning claim against those who are his. We see this in a couple places. In Romans chapter one, Paul says there's not any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's true. If you are in Christ, there is nothing that can condemn you in the presence of God. No one, no voice, no accusation, no uh, indictment. You are secure in the presence of God. We see in Colossians 2, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, meaning the demonic principalities and powers, puts them to open shame by triumphing over them in the death of Jesus. And then I'll let you read Revelation 12 on your own, but it's a, it's a pictorial way of saying that at the ascension, because of Jesus' death, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, who, who stood to accuse God's people, now has been cast out. There's no longer a place for him to accuse you before the throne of God. So when we sing before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. And then we go to the next one. When Satan tempts me to despair, behold, I look, right? Because Satan doesn't have a place 
to accuse you in the presence of God. He doesn't have a legal right anymore. He's been cast out of heaven and no longer has a charge against you if you're in Christ Jesus. So now there is no one who can keep you from experiencing the promises of God to dwell with his people forever because he doesn't have a claim. Page four. Look at Roman numeral four. So Jesus lays out the, there's fa- the father's house. It has plenty of space. I'm gonna go and make a way for you to enter into it. And then he leaves with this promise that if he goes and departs from them, he will come again to them. He will receive them to himself and he will dwell with them forever. The promise here is Jesus is saying, I have to go away. I have to go away and it's gonna be better. We're gonna find out in weeks to come, which we have a hard time wrapping our mind around. He says, it's gonna be better that I go away. But if I go away, I promise you, there will be a day when I come back for you. And when I come back, I will receive you to myself and you will never, ever, 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 ever be apart from me again. I will be with you and you will be with me where I am always. That is what he outlines there. So how do we do this? How do we navigate these truths in our lives as we're exhorted by Jesus to not let our hearts be overcome or weighed down with trouble, but to believe in him? Right? Jesus commands his disciples and his followers to believe in God and believe in him. And I think that actually requires something of us. Right? Belief always has feet to it. Always has feet to it. Right? Belief isn't just sitting back and waiting for lightning to strike. Belief is going out and planting a seed in the ground, believing that if you put the seed in the ground and water it, that there's something remarkable happening that you cannot see and that life will come because of it. That is belief, right? A farmer who believes and sits on his couch and doesn't do anything doesn't actually believe, right? He's just waiting for lightning to strike or something. There, it, it does require something, right? So rather than let ourselves get carried about by the winds and waves or currents of heaviness and sorrow and despair, we're invited to participate with God, I think by praying the word of God with gratitude, as I mentioned earlier, and humility. So when Jesus was tested, we see this even in the life of Jesus. When Jesus was tested, And he resisted temptation, how? By declaring the word of God, right? Jesus, God in the flesh, as he goes into the wilderness to be tested and tempted, he engages in that moment by using God's word as the weapon of his warfare, right? He says, what does he do? It is written, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. This is my word claim. This is my reality. What God has declared is what I believe to be true. We see this in Jesus, right? Matthew 4, 
Paul, when he talks about the armor of God, taking up the armor of God, he has all of these realities that are, you could call, quote unquote, passive or defensive, right? A helmet, a shield, a belt, shoes, a chest plate, and he has one weapon. What's the weapon? The word of God. The word of God, right? The word of God engaged in the place of prayer before God is how we do this. So what does that look like, right? We engage our hearts in belief by giving thanks for the reality of these truths and by humbly asking God to reveal them to our hearts in greater measure, right? So we find ourselves in a moment of despair, despair, this hopelessness that nothing will ever change. And the reality of the world is weighing down on us and our hearts feel tempted to hopeless despair and we're getting carried away by that current, right? In that moment, what do we do? What do we do? Do we just let our heart get carried away by the current and then 48 hours pass and we kind of come to our senses and go, oh man, that's, that's, that's a, a bum deal. I, I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. No, God actually gives us a means to engage in the midst of it. It doesn't mean that it's gonna be easy. It doesn't mean that it's gonna go away. It doesn't mean that something right in that moment is going to change, but he does give us a means. What we do in that moment as we're weighed down with despair and hopelessness as we take up the truth of the word of God. God, thank you that you have a house. Thank you that my eternal dwelling is secure. Not because anything that I have done, not because I merited it, not because I earned it, not because my works are big enough, not because I had something amazing to bring, but because Jesus had grace and dispensed it to me by going to the cross in order that I would have life forever. Thank you that that is true. You take the truth, thank God for him. Thank God for it. God, your truth your uh, revelation that you have a house and it has plenty of space. You have an abundant provision for any and all who come to you. Thank you that that is true. Thank you that regardless of what I feel right now, of how hopeless I feel, how despairing I feel, how much my circumstances are telling me that nothing is ever going to change and nothing will ever be different. You have declared that there is a reality of your house and I have been welcomed in by the blood of Jesus because of his sacrifice, his forgiving power, that he has taken the wrath that I deserve, that he has defeated death. I can spend eternity with you forever. You're going to come again and receive me to yourself. God, thank you for that. Thank you that that is true. Thank you that regardless of my experience right now, no matter what I'm walking through, that is unchanging. That is secure. That is stable. With a spirit of gratitude, that's what it looks like. Then ask him to reveal that to you. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 and following, Paul lays out, that the spirit of God actually has to make our hearts receptive to the truth of God. 
The Spirit of God searches out the things of God and makes them known to his people. So we ask him for that. Paul in Ephesians 1 prays this for the believers. I pray that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, meaning not just that they would understand it with their minds, right? Like you could go out and regurgitate the things that we talked about this morning, but that when you look at those truths, they're alive to you. That's what revelation is, that you see them, that you love them, that you enjoy them, that you put your hope in them, that you delight in them. So you thank God for them. This is true, regardless of what I feel. And God, would you by your spirit make me alive to that truth? Reveal that truth to me. Show it to me more clearly. Make me love it more. Make that truth shape how I see this world and live in this world right now. Reveal your eternal dwelling to me. Reveal the power that you have gone to the cross to forgive my sin, to placate God's wrath, to destroy death, to cast the accuser out. Show me more of that. Let me see more of that. Let me be alive to that truth. Let me experience it. That's how we engage in believe in God, believe also in me. In the places where we're tempted to be overwhelmed, overcome, weighed down, we take the truth of God, we give him thanks for it, and we ask him to reveal it to us. Amen. Hey, would you all stand with me? I'm just gonna pray that over us and then we're gonna come to the table. God, this morning, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that your word is true, that it is firm, that there is not one thing in your word um, that is untrue. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. God, I just ask, I ask right now, Um, in this room, God, for those who are experiencing a troubled heart, God, I ask that you would help us by your grace, because it even takes your grace to believe. We don't have it inside of ourselves. We, We come to you and ask you this morning that you would give us the ability to come with grateful hearts in the midst of our anxiety. And God, would you let the truth of your scripture just saturate us? The truth that you have an eternal dwelling place that is secure. The the fact that Jesus, you, you laid down your life to secure a place for us to forgive our sins, to appease God's wrath, to triumph over sin and death forever. God, to prepare a way, a new and living way. So we even come into that right now. God, we we agree with your truth 
and say that it is good and ask that you would reveal more of it to our hearts. God, even as we come to the table this morning, would you sustain us and nourish us and feed us by faith as we declare the truth of the death of Jesus and remember his forgiving power, his uh, atoning power, God, the, the triumph over sin, its effects over death, over the grave. God, would you, would you stabilize us in that truth again this morning as we come? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Come and take and eat. And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he passed it. And he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant that is spilled out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And so we're going to celebrate that together this morning. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, if you put your faith in him and him alone, we want to invite you to come and take. This table is open to any and all who are putting their faith in Jesus. The way we take communion at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware. We have juice in the glassware. We have servers in the front, middle, and up in the balcony and a gluten-free station to my right. If you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we don't want you to feel the pressure to come and take this meal. We ask that you not take this. Uh, this meal is for those who put their faith in Christ, who, who, have, uh, who believe in him. This, this meal points to the reality that it's because of his broken body and shed blood that we have life. And it would be hollow for you to come and celebrate this out of obligation or, or hope that it affords you something with God. We ask that you would stay in your seat. And we, we have uh, prayers um, in the seat back in front of you if you, if you wanna know what it would sound like to pray to God this morning. But uh, we're glad you're here, but please don't come take this meal with us. But for those who are coming, come and receive with gratitude, with faith. And let's ask God to nourish us and strengthen us as we come. Come when you're ready.